0: and welcome to Pod my Us. i could. i'm martin quabell known to my friends as marv and this time to discuss the 60th anniversary of the first james bond film doctor no i am chatting with a group of friends from various spy related podcast and bond related podcast and first of all i'll ask uh, scott to introduce himself well, hello, yes, I'm
1: Agent Scott from the uh, Spy Hards podcast. I think I'm the odd man out uh, in this group of uh, not just covering James Bond every week, but we also tackle spy movies. But uh, yeah, thank you for having
2: us.
0: Okay. And Hugh? Hello,
2: I'm Hugh. I'm one of the hosts of the James Bond Cocktail Hour.
3: And Joe? How's it going? My name is Joseph Darlington and I host uh, Being James Bond on YouTube and uh, wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Thank you very much. Bud? Hi, Bud West from the Bond Brain Podcast and YouTube channel. Thank you. And John?
5: Hi, I am John from the Really 007 podcast.
6: Thank you very much. Uh, Tyler? Hello, my name is Tyler, and I'm uh, one of the hosts of the, um, the 00 Files podcast.
0: Thank you. And Tim?
7: Hi, everyone. I'm Tim. I'm the other half of the uh, James Bond cocktail hour.
0: And Martin?
8: Yeah, I'm Martin. I'm uh, one of the other co-hosts for the uh, 00 Files.
0: Thank you very much. Anyway, so 60 years of Bond... Uh, Let's start this off by saying then, Tim, what was your first Bond experience?
7: Oh, watching Goldeneye on VHS. And what made it special was that the VHS broke uh, just as uh, Sean Bean got uh, escaped from the train. So it was kind of a cliffhanger. And um, then I just caught up with the rest of the movies in various spurts and... (laughs)
0: Stats. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you know what I think? I ought to actually just make this open and just say what What is everybody's first experience of Bond?
6: Well, for me, it was either uh, either Octopus or Moonraker. Yep. And it was just a romp. I I, I only remember just enjoying uh, the the whole two hours of it and i i don't know if it was octopussy first or moonraker first but they were uh, more or less around at the same time
0: well i know my first experience that i remember i mean bond was on television a lot in the uk yeah. when i was a kid but my first experience that i remember vividly would be going to see um, for your eyes only at the cinema when it came out which I'm aging myself there showing my age but so that was the first experience that I remember vividly going there with my two older brothers to go and see that film and I thought it was I thought it was fantastic and um, I really really enjoyed it and I've seen every single bond film since then at the cinema uh,
5: my first experience as well was uh, regarding when the films in the UK were being played on a wednesday night and I went on a school holiday a primary school holiday to a northern town called Whitby and we had a bed yep. curfew at eight o'clock uh, and at eight o'clock I was twiddling my thumbs not knowing what to do turned on this old school telly and uh, I just saw a screen with Roger Moore and Rosie Carver running through um, a woods in San Monique with two scarecrows turning their heads and firing Uh, a gun into Rosie carver i did not know what i was watching but from that moment on i was hooked and 25 years later i am a james bond super nerd that's the only way i can describe it
4: yeah for me it was octopussy in the theater and i remember walking out and i could not believe i paid money to watch a guy my dad's age run around and get lucky and shoot people but um (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, years later running a movie theater and Dalton had taken over the role and I got hooked uh, kind of from the living daylights on.
3: I'll I'll piggyback off of Bud. I had a very similar uh, time frame. Octopussy was my first experience in the theater. Uh, Figure Rise Only was my first experience uh, on TV before that. That That was my window into James Bond. Go on, Scott
0: yeah yeah thank
1: you uh well my memory is a bit distorted it's kind of hard to tell i haven't got the best of memories it's either i played the n64 GoldenEye game or i went to see tomorrow never dies in the cinema i do distinctly remember leaving the cinema uh sitting in the back of my parents car and trying to drive the car for them
2: on a little gadget (laughs) i had so uh it, it appealed to me at a very young age uh, very much like scott i also had experience to the goldeneye video game uh and then managed to watch and i think it was my first bond movie i watched uh just like tim uh and then um remember feeling vaguely disappointed after tomorrow never dies come, comes out uh, especially since it was a new zealand director and uh both tim and i are, are in new zealand
7: oh die another oh, day I di- think yeah sorry sorry yeah this yeah.
2: <laughs> See, Tim's the uh, the brains of this operation.
7: <laughs> no, I think I think we've each tripped up on uh, the the kill
8: die titles. <laughs> yeah. I'm joining the Free uh team here. Uh, saw it on TV, uh, well past my bedtime, but I vividly remember seeing Roger Moore uh, sprinting, quote unquote, out of a. Um, a burning building and running up the stairs, uh, shooting Locke in his arm and then kicking him off with car and all. And at that moment, uh, there was one of the many ads. I really had to go to bed, but I was like, I have to see more of this. I, that was just the coolest thing I've ever, ever seen. And that weekend, went to uh, our Dutch version of a, of a blockbuster, and they had Golden Eye, they had Four uh, or Gold Finger, uh, and Four only, and that got the ball rolling.
0: I don't know why, but that's brought to mind, I think, uh, was it when I was chatting with you, Scott, or is it something you've chatted about on your own show, uh, Spy Arts, before, where it's interesting that during the, specifically after a certain period, the Bond films, you, you they, they went in this sort of thing where you had sort of like a really serious Bond, followed by a light-hearted Bond, and I, th- I think it was your show where it was mentioned, wasn't it, Scott?
1: Yeah, that, that's definitely come up a couple of times because we've we've tackled things like uh, Die Another Day, sort of the the eccentric the eccentricities of Bond. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever is another one as well that sort of tries to self-correct afterwards. Live and Let Die is quite the follow-up to that film, and uh, Casino Royale is a a massive shift in tone from die another day and you tend to find again with moonraker as well it tends to get to the point of insanity and then try to recalibrate itself and it's done it quite a few times throughout mm. its uh, 25 film run
0: yeah because i think i think some people mistakenly think of bond in that light hearted way and they don't see the this the more serious aspects of bond sometimes
1: I think people tend to like think of the, I, I, as I said, in, insanity, but lighthearted is probably the correct term, you're right, um, as, as the moments they remember because of their the fact that they sort of stretch reality. But ultimately, it, it, I find Bond's most usually the most popular when it's running that sort of gamut in between being lighthearted and serious. So you get things like GoldenEye, you get things like Goldfinger, and uh, maybe Casino Royale as well.
8: Yeah, well, maybe it has something to do with, um, like, the things that are, are sort of, um, well, I don't want to call it common knowledge, but just to give an example, I had uh, recently met someone uh, new who had legit never seen a Bond movie, like, in its entirety before, but, like, she recognized the DB5 with the ejector C, and, and you know, she recognized the Invisible Aston and, and the stuff like that, because, you know, that's the iconic, though, know, she... Uh, saw the jetpack from Thunderball uh, somewhere before, you know, some of these iconic scenes that are sort of played out in every single tribute or montage or whatever, you know, those kind of uh, things always pop up everywhere. Uh, And they tend to be, you know, uh, the more outrageous the films get, the more uh, recognizable, either good or bad, the the scenes get that they can put in these kind of things. Mm.
0: That's interesting, because that means that she recognises a lot of the gadget sequences. Yeah.
8: Yeah, no, she uh, she couldn't tell any guy from, from the other one, but, you know, she that, those are obviously the um, the scenes, like, if you had to make a tribute, that you have to put some of the gadgets in there. If you had to have to, like, sum up Bond in one minute, the word gadget always drops.
0: Yeah, you'd have to have uh, Little Nelly in there, you'd have to have the... Um, one of the watches, at least, and the car with the remote control that apparently Scott's parents owned.
1: <laughs> I, I wish they owned it, unfortunately. I think I just owned a, a toy truck that I pretended was a, the phone. But uh, yeah, let, let, Let's say they had those, that kind of money in 1997.
4: <laughs>
0: but don't we all wish we had some of these gadgets?
4: Uh, when I'm stuck in traffic, yeah. Uh, the Stinger missiles would be nice. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: I've got quite a bad back these days so I think I would uh, take that rack that Sean gets strapped into. That, that might help.
7: <laughs> mm, yeah, I think I'm with you there. <laughs> well, I won't screen. introduce you to
0: Xenia yeah. the top then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do you think the films have evolved then over the 60 years? <laughs>
6: Well, I think I think it's been a a pendulum that that keeps swinging from from serious to less serious to serious again, just like just like you said. And I think that's the that's the beauty of Bond that there's a uh, a Bond movie for every mood and there's a Bond movie for every person. Um, if I'm in the mood for something lighthearted, I might put I don't know uh, a live and a die on. Um, and if I want something completely different, and I uh, then I turn to Quantum of Solace. So. Um it they are a sign of the times, right? So you you, you see what's popular um, what was popular when it was made. Um, and I think that's a that, that snapshot of time is is one of the things that that really uh, makes Bond special for me, uh, a 60 years running mm. movie franchise like that um, really shows you those snapshots in time.
4: Yeah, and they always seem to get back to the the standard tropes. You know, Casino Royale is, you know, there's no cue, there's no money penny, there's really no gadgets, it's more of a straight spy movie. But by the time you get to the end here, you know, they, they've brought all that stuff back. It's it, Even when they pull pieces out, it seems like they are always just, it's just a matter of time before they work themselves back in the gun barrel and, and all of the pieces that you always associate with a Bond movie.
5: I think James Bond is quite a reactive um, film series in a lot of ways. I mean, the si- the sixties spy thrillers um, Bond s- was set the benchmark of them. But I think one of the reasons why it's evolved and continued throughout time is if you you know you, especially you can go through Roger you know Roger Moore's uh, early thing. It was black exploitation films, *Live and Let it Die*, kung fu films, *Man with the Golden Gun*. Jaws comes out, and then you get a villain called Jaws. Um, Star Wars, Moonraker, yeah, moon and you can, go, you can go through the whole of that, and arguably you could do that up to the Daniel Craig era. And I think that um, mm. that isn't necessarily a criticism. That's more um, one of the secrets is why it has evolved, why it stayed relevant on top of that, because it has moved with the times.
4: Yeah, even at the beginning of the Craig era, I mean, you, you see Casino Royale, you see the replacement of Baccarat in the novel with Texas Hold'em, which had become very popular by that time in, in the film.
3: I th- you know, I think one of the beauties of Bond is that it's got it when Bond hits the reset button. Bond has been around so long that you're absolutely right, it does sort of ebb and flow with the times and it reflects things that are happening in Hollywood but then when it sort of gets back to his roots that's where you start to see the essence of James Bond And, and I think that's sort of one of the things that holds it together is that it doesn't get too far off the ranch so to speak it always kind of comes back home
2: yeah, and to continue on that that point i think tim and i might have a sort of a slight advantage over the film only podcast as we're a film and literary podcast and when you look at yeah. the broad base that was really set up that crosses so many different genres uh which was ian fleming's sort of written bond you've got sort of the more serious ones you've got you know from russia with love but you've also got james bond in new york which was essentially a comedy that I think we both agreed at the time that Roger Moore would be perfect for because the whole thing ends with the joke. There is no reptile a reptile house at the New York Zoo, so the whole thing is just a farce of a of a spy, um, a spy mission essentially.
7: Yeah, yeah. The we uh, jumping off that. There's always been even down to the books. I think the thing that made it good for movies was the fact that there's so much weirdness to Fleming. It's always a spy story, but through a kind of a, a weird, uh, uh, God, what's the, what's the kind of like a fun house mirror. Yeah. Uh, It's always like, he's always adding like something, a weird little touch, even if it's just like odd job or, um, having a, a payoff in an auction house with a Fabergé egg. There's always just, I think that, that element of, um, kind of one foot in reality and one foot in fantasy is, is key.
0: Yeah. But you've got those elements in a lot of Ian Fleming's writing, haven't you? I mean, not just the Bonds, but you know, I mean, a lot of people listening won't know that he wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, for instance, but there's always that. And in his writing, as in, you know, in the Bond books as well, there's that element that's slightly askew here and there in the books.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, especially when you look at things like Octopussy, right? Look at the movie compared to what the book was. The book is about a guy's friendship with an octopus that Bond only shows up right at the end. It's uh, you know, yeah, it's very bizarre. It does sort of straddle the bizarre and reality.
0: But but then Octopussy itself, the film um, that shows where the filmmakers digress away from the actual. Maybe book itself. Oh boy, Cause the, do they? Because the the, the the film octopus. <laughs> little. That, a that little. bit there that you mentioned. That bit that you mentioned there. That's more. That's more aligned to the short story, uh, of the um, oh, um, property of a lady. Actually, isn't it? I think. Is it? Uh, yeah, the auction. The auction. Yeah.
7: Yeah. And the octopusy short story is like just the 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 backstory of her father, of Octopussy's father.
4: Yeah. They do that quite often in the in the films, though. You can't really f- track the, the novels to mm. the films because you'll you'll realize that they've lifted a chapter here or a chapter there, and, and then they've kind of inserted it into a film of another title from one of the other novels. And so film-wise, they, they think they really kind of slice and dice the, the tropes that you come across in all the novels. Which is kind of funny, which um, having seen the films
8: first and then start to read novels later, I was, uh, for example, I was uh, reading Live and Let Die. Yep. And there's some scenes, I'm like, within two pages, you go from License to Kill to Live and Let Die to Doctor and Exactly. Back <laughs> again. It's
4: yeah. probably mm-hmm. the biggest example right there.
8: Yeah, like you're literally picturing Timothy Dalton climbing through right, the window, yeah. and the next page is like, "Oh, it's Roger again. Yeah. That's a very weird mental yeah, image. It's kind it's, of hard
4: to hold, reading the novels later, need. to hold the same image of the same actor while you're reading the novel, because they skip around. Yep. Yeah, well, it's a, it was a fun read, nonetheless.
0: That was my first book, by the way, that I read of Bond, "Live and Let Die. But do, do you think that they... The way that they adapt it for the films, do you think it's smart how they do it, or or do you think that the books would translate better? If I mean, what do you think of the of how it is? Do you think it works as it is, or do you think that if it have done a straight, you know, transfer of the book to film, which way do you think would have worked?
4: Well, sixty years in, it's it's kind of hard to argue with the choices <laughs> that they've made. Yeah. <laughs> Well, right. It depends on the
2: book, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly yeah. novels I would oh, yeah. have
4: rather seen a, a straight adaptation of. I mean, I, I am not a Moonraker fan, and yet I love the novel. So th- there are some I think that would have been better, but I wouldn't say that's the case with all of them. Um, I'm instantly looking at diamonds.
3: I'll tell you what, I'll go, I'll go to bat. I, I, I personally think that in most cases, a pretty authentic translation of the book has served them very well. I think the first few Bond films are a great example. Honor Majesties is another one. And obviously Casino Royale, um, at a time where I thought they would never, ever do that book the way it was written, they did. And boy, did it work.
4: Yeah, it was a bit of a shocker, actually, to watch that and see that they followed it that closely. Yeah.
7: Especially considering um, Die Another Day is such a, a steroidal take on the Moonraker. Not even, I don't even want to say the plot, just like the concept of the plot. <laughs> just the idea of a villain pretending to be someone else and having a uh, a piece of technology that's meant to be this great thing for the world. And instead it's going to be turned on um, uh, the forces of good, I guess.
0: So it could have gone very wrong, but it didn't. <laughs> I mean, so what do you think is essential for the, uh, you know, if if, if you were, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use a baking analogy or I'm trying, I, I don't know how it works. So if you were to come up with the recipe of what makes a quintessential Bond film, I mean, I'd think gadgets, music, and I don't know, probably the clothing and the style and You've got to say the Bond girls, I suppose, in a lot of cases as well. Anything else you can think of? Uh, Clueless
5: Bond. I've got to to say, you need to have a gun barrel at the start for me.
8: (laughs) And regretfully, uh, in this day and age, we have to specify without a fade out and with blood and, and, and
5: and and not the dead are alive after you've uh, after you've had the gun bite. no
8: pretentious text yeah. no
1: i i'm not sure i quite agree on that i i think y- you can look at lots of different bond films that haven't used some of those things and that have been very successful we mentioned dr no at the start it's missing yeah. a lot of those components but you could say that's one of sean connery's finest performances is bond and perhaps one mm. of his closest moments to the ian fleming character himself I I think to answer Marv's question, for me at least, it's more to do with having the right man in the tux, uh, a strong visionary, strong visual director leading the film, and a good script from good writers.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've touched on something there that, that I think is really essential to getting Bond from the beginning absolutely right, which other than Saltzman and Broccoli bringing it bringing it out as producers, I think Terence Young's, you know, influence and inspiration was perfect to start it all off and be that first director. Because his, his actual, you know, how he is, you know, and the, the fact that he dressed and taught, you know, Connery about wearing the suit and how to look and the whole aesthetic of Bond has a hell of a lot to do with him being that first initial director.
7: Yeah, I think also just jumping off that, just the whole team that they put together, I mean they really lucked out. They got uh, Maurice Binder on titles, they had Richard Maybaum and various others involved with the scripts. You had um, John Berry's music, Um, you had Ken Adam right from the jump as the production designer. Um, and of course, Peter Hunt, the secret, the secret source behind the um, Bond visual aesthetic as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, Terence Young. Yeah.
0: So what? What do we think then? Are the standout gadgets then?
4: If we're going to number six on this list. Uh, for me, personally, like the car. Or? I mean, um, it, it's the – I love the various automobile gadgets, and some of them have been done and, and done again. But um, I think that, you know, in a lot of cases, the car – even in Casino Royale where you didn't really have gadgets in the car. Um, but still, that at that point, you, the DB5 is, is kind of iconic, so you can kind of live with it. Um, Skyfall is a little inconsistent. You know, early in the film, Q says, you know, talks about an exploding pen and says, we really don't go in for that kind of stuff. But then later in Skyfall, he's got machine guns out of his headlights. So it's it's that was that was a little inconsistent (laughs) for me. But to me, the 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 car with the gadgets is is something that I I like to see personally. Right. Just my take. Good luck trying to find some consistency in the bottom. Yeah.
8: (laughs)
5: I think you can't. But, yeah. I don't think you can. <clears throat> but I can fully say this is my absolute favourite because I think there's different ones for different films. There's some gadgets that are so ridiculous, but I would never change them for the world because they're pure entertainment. If I say if I was asked uh, what is my favourite gadget, I would probably all in all say the attaché case from from Russia with Love, um, mm. and. I remember when reading about the them actually coming out as toys for Christmas at, in uh, 1963. And I, if I was a child in that, that would be the first present I would be asking for. Because it captures the imagination, but it's still very grounded as a spy gadget as well. And I think that that is the perfect balance.
8: They're uh, re-releasing one, aren't they? Well, I think they are. Are they really? Wow. Yeah, I thought I saw something on the 007 store. It's ridiculously <laughs> priced, as per usual, but yeah. they're making like... There'll uh, be, be 50 of them. Okay, then. Well, I won't <laughs> right. ask <my> Probably. <laughs> yeah.
4: Slightly less than the $6,000 backgammon set. Right. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit less, yeah. Good I think there's good free
0: ones to all podcasts that talk about <laughs> James Bond. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Seconded. They'd be giving
1: out many, many versions, I think, then, if that was the case. Um, To get back to the gadget question, I I think I have to go to the thing that potentially brought me into the game in the first place, and that is the mobile phone controller in the car. That little little (laughs) gadget there. I I just think that's a a cool, modern bit of tech. Even now, I don't, I mean, we can just about do, but it feels like slightly out of reach. Um, A lot of older Bond gadgets kind of. We could do now. We have like iPhones do a lot of stuff, but that phone feels like it's still still cool
0: now. Well, it is sort of possible now, isn't it? If you think about it, it could be a controller for a drone. So I suppose it could be a mm-hmm. controller for a car.
8: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's some car brands out there. We have like this sort of you know the parking function where it drives the last couple of feet forwards or backwards into your garage or a tight spot or whatever. So who knows what we'll be in another ten years?
0: I can't see his having those glasses, though, that Roger had in uh, A View to a Kill, where he just turned that switch and he could see through dark windows. Nah, but that's also because
8: no one could pull those ridiculous glasses off. I mean, if even Roger can't do it, then no one can. So why bother?
6: What about the (laughs) glasses from the world is not enough? Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah,
4: x ray glasses. That's That's what I was going to say. That's a good call. Rosner perfected it. Every teenage boy in the world would be buying those x ray glasses. Yeah. (laughs)
5: Yeah, I, I am just going to stick it in there. You know, on the um, bit where he has the x-ray glasses and he sees the two ladies by the roulette wheel and yes. sees their underwear, um, the dark-haired lady is my cousin. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was um, it was definitely like a talking point when I was at school when that film came out. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Just do the Leonardo DiCaprio meme. Just point
9: at the screen. Hang on,
6: hang uh, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but when it comes to gadgets, I don't really like the convoluted ones. The ones that are only uh, suitable for one particular scene in one particular movie in mm. one particular <laughs> instance. Yeah. If this happens, then you have your poison... Uh, acid fan God, what's that dude. jacket
7: from the world is not enough yeah
6: something like that exactly
8: uh, what i always like to bring up is uh, to tomorrow never dies to bmw so bon just in case you're in a parking lot and someone decides to span a cable <laughs> at just about this height you can press this button and then your bmw logo comes up and it's got a circular yeah, the saw in it so,
6: you know, located bmw logo it's the most, yeah. i
8: love that scene but that's just, yeah <laughs> just in case someone decides to span a cable at exactly about
0: above bonnet length or height. I,
1: I love that Tomorrow Never Dies is winning this competition. I am all for it.
0: Yeah. But isn't the, one of the biggest tropes the fact that you get something at the beginning of a film that is impo- isn't important at all until that single moment towards the end where, oh, we're, we're really in deep doo-doo here. Oh, I know. Mm-hmm. I'll use that. And the, the film's over and we've won the and we've beat the, the bad guy.
4: When you see it ahead of time
0: yeah, though, I you, mean, know, you it's know it's coming set up past, though. Well,
2: that was the nice thing about uh, the bag of goodies that he got in the book No Deals, Mr. Bond. His weapons that he that he had there was just a bag of knives, grenades, a few guns, just you know, uh, essentially the tools of the trade for who Bond is meant to be which really makes my favorite uh, Bond gadget probably his, you know, Walther PPK, you know, it's with him in many, many movies and the books he never really likes it very much. But, uh, you know, it's really the one that's spanned, I guess, most films, oh, apart from his car, I guess.
7: Uh, mine's The Golden Gun from Scarabanga. <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk about convoluted in a good way. I mean, that thing is just so fantastic and over-the-top. I love it. Mm. But then again, that's one of the first films I saw, and I saw that when I was, like, 12. So, you know, it's a gun and it's gold. What more do you need to please a 12-year-old boy?
7: You put it together like a transformer. <laughs>
8: <laughs> exactly. I've actually got a replica lying around. I couldn't resist. I'm still a 12-year-old oh, boy God. inside.
0: We'll watch our backs when we visit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, did, did, was wasn't there a story or something where somebody wrote to uh, Ian Fleming about the Wolf of PPK, and then he changed it in the in later books so that that's mm. the Bond mm. Mr. Boothroyd, yes, yeah. and yeah. that's how he got yeah. Mr. Boothroyd. It was the in Beretta, the yeah. yeah,
7: yeah. There's a great video on. Is it the Goldfinger DVD where they interview him,
8: the real Boothroyd? Wow, it's one of the oldest films, yeah. I'm not sure. I've seen that, but there's an interview about him. The only thing I
7: remember about him is that his moustache, he twirled one side (laughs) up and the other side down. (laughs) It was very specific.
8: (laughs) A
0: larger than life character, as so many are in the Bond franchise. (laughs) Yeah, my favourite gadget would actually be the attaché case as well. I I remember that as being a a favourite and Mm. I mean, I think uh, I think from Russia with Love was a big, ch- big change from from the first. And then then you get to that, and and then from then onwards, it you know, it that's what I meant by evolved. I mean, I think that the films evolved in style over the years. That it, it, it went from there to there, and they built as the as the franchise, you know, carried on. Might actually hmm. be a hot take to say, but I think that
8: might be the biggest uh, jump in quality we've had uh, in between films from Dr. No True, from Russia with Love, like in, in terms of, like, I'm not talking about performance or music or that's all uh, personal taste, but if you look at the uh, the whole fact that you can sort of see in the finished product that they're all thinking like, we're onto something here. Let's let's go a bit more. Let's do everything we did before, but just a bit more, a bit more polished. There's more, uh, you know, Sean's got a bit more, um, well, I'm not going to say uh, graphic task. But he's just... Bit more confidence and then everything just rolls along a bit more smoothly which is quite surprising if you look at the the troubles they had during filming
0: right i don't know anything about the troubles that they had during filming
8: i oh, don't know with the uh, uh, pedro um uh, oh yes well yeah. being terminal and with the, the whole reshoot of the entire specter scene and the whole uh, recut and re-edit of the well pretty much the entire pre-title mm. sequence getting uh, accidentally becoming a thing
4: actually
7: I think they ran out of money as well, eh?
4: There was some type of budgetary issue, yes. Yeah.
7: yeah. Ted Young was T- Terence Young almost died in the,
8: yeah. the helicopter. Accident. The helicopter crash, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, Thunderbolt, you had the you had the almost the the big problem in in underwater, didn't you, with the shark and Sean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
8: and then was was it? Was it Yoninlift twice, I think?
0: Yeah. The,
8: the Cubby and, and every pretty much like the entire top brass were scheduled on the plane to go back. They're like you no, know, they last minute they had this invite to go look at some traditional Japanese fishing village. You're like, Ah well let's do it. And then yeah. the plane that was supposed to be on crashed and killed everyone on
0: board. Yeah. So that was Wow. Quite mm. dark. And then uh, and then Sean almost lost his manhood in Goldfinger. Uh, in Goldfinger. <laughs>
8: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like did he or is that one of those things that has been exaggerated just like uh, on documentary or Doctor Note when they talk about the the spider and how it was also dangerous because they had to pay the stomach extra because its venom sack was full and you know it turns out it's not
4: even a lethal spider to human beings. But you know the spider that's clearly walking across for a, the... a sheet of glass. A glass plate, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: i was thinking i was thinking goldfinger that was the bit with the with the laser isn't it where they've got the person underneath with the welding torch yeah underneath and oh. he's getting closer and closer as he goes and he can't see what he's doing very well because the monitor is tiny or something so he can't see how close he is to sean when he's doing it Jeez.
8: all in a day's work yeah
0: and then of course you get Roger Moore comes in and Roger's sort of like no I won't do any of that right. <laughs>
8: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then, you, then later on a bit late then then you get Tim, Timothy Dalton and apparently Timothy Dalton liked doing this stuff
8: yeah he was sort of suicidal in a good way if you can believe the stories he's like yeah no let me jump on that Range Rover almost bounding off a cliff at 60 miles an hour let me do this. Let me do that. Let me, which is admirable, sure. Quite,
4: quite a risk when that's your, <laughs> you know, when that's your star. I mean, you know, Tom Cruise with the injuries in, in, you know, and, yeah. I was
8: just about to say that.
4: Yeah, he's like, one uh, for that.
8: It was sort of a Tom Cruise avant letter, Yeah. It? Like, his insurance company won't let him do it. Fine, I'll
0: just find another insurance right. company. Right. <laughs> Well he, well, he fired the uh, the actual uh, was it the stunt ranger or something? For yeah, apparently, the yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he, he was saying, "Oh, you know, you can't possibly do this," and he said, "Well, I can if I fire you." And then he got somebody else to, to be the <laughs> stunt coordinator.
8: <sighs> what <a> character?
0: <laughs> but but then it bites him on his, bites him you know on the arse as we call it in England. You know where he broke his broke his ankle, didn't he on that? Um, yeah. That jump and they were they cost him a fortune in production fees while they were closed for however long it was.
8: Yeah, but then again he finished a take with a broken ankle. I mean you can talk about commitment to your job all you want, but there's <laughs>
0: commitment and there's commitment and then there's Tom Cruise. He he ran away. Yeah. He's a real life terminator. Uh... But then Daniel Craig actually did
4: cause himself some damage on a couple of stunts as well, doing Bond. I, I think he's been injured almost every time, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, he was injured a, a few times in uh, the filming of Casino Royale, including getting a couple of teeth knocked out, from what I understand. That's, I was kind of not impressed when I heard that he lost a fake fight, but um, the film turned out okay in the end. <laughs>
7: Uh, watching that that documentary about him last year made me really, and not that I hate Quantum, but it really made me angry at the editing because they show the behind the scenes footage of him jumping across uh, a ledge onto another building, mm-hmm. and you know you watch it in the film, and I mean I couldn't tell. <laughs> you could have told me it was anybody doing that because they they chop it up so much, and it's just like. I think he busted his knee or something doing that and it's just like oh you know what are you thinking when you're watching the final film and you can barely see all the stuff that you you broke yourself for yeah,
4: yeah the, the shaky camera it was like watching an episode of Cops but uh... but
0: that's the crazy side to doing that you know letting the actor do that sort of thing because then I can understand why you know Tom Cruise sometimes would do his own stunts in his films but If you're not going to actually be on, have the camera on that actual person close enough for you to see that that is that person, why bother actually putting them into those situations when you could just have a professional there who can react accordingly and knows what they're doing for a living?
4: Yeah, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, particularly in that leap onto the balcony scene um, that was just mentioned because you, you see the whole thing from behind. All you see is the back of his head.
8: Yeah, and I think was it? I think it was Timothy Dalton, didn't he? Who said you know, about uh, he was asked you know if he did more stunts uh, and all that stuff. And he said that it wasn't really important how much of the stunts you're doing, as long as the people uh, watching the finished product can believe that the character is doing it. He says it doesn't matter if you can see me mm. doing it or not, as long as you can believe that James Bond can do this. Then that's
0: all that should matter, really. Yeah. So another important bit I would say is definitely the music and is it um from Rushwide Love Another First I think that's when we first got John Barry involved isn't it Yeah the first so what I understand score. he
7: yeah he rearranged and and um, according to him basically rewrote whatever Monty Norman gave him to create the Bond theme and then they played that through the editor just kept putting it throughout the whole Movie, and then they're like, Oh, let's get this guy into um to do from Rush with Love, and then they were off to the races. I'd,
1: yeah. I'd really recommend everyone checks out the uh Sound of 007 yeah. documentary on Amazon that's now there. I was there for the BFI screening last weekend, and it's a wonderful documentary, it really does sort of chart the course of, of Bond music,
8: yeah. And and they sort of finally sort of settled that debate between Norman and Barry. I mean, it's it, it's both of them together, really. Absolutely.
9: Yeah.
0: But then you start to get the really great. That's that's when you start to get the really great themes as well. From then on, you get the the classic themes. So from from there after that, you you then get you know you get the Goldfinger, which is a classic. Yeah. And then you you get Thunderball. It's a big epic song, and and then you it's from there that you get all these big songs that are really important as well. I think to the whole. Iconography of the Bond films. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's
8: pretty safe to say that one of the few things, pretty much all Bond fans can agree on, is that John Barry really introduced and defined the Bond sound, yes. and everyone who's come after him has, in some way or another, tried to get a bit of his feel or a bit of his style in there. Because you know, I mean, he demanded eleven out of twenty-five soundtracks. That's just, you no, know, you can't go wrong where you try to. Be a bit Barry-like in your soundtracks.
10: What Barry was so good at was that he's so timeless. This is that you can listen to an '80s, you can listen to a View to a Kill now, uh, an '80s Bond film score, and then you can put on a score from the '80s of a different film, and the one sounds dated, and one sounds timeless, and that is John Barry's. uh, For me, it's that's his essence. That's the thing that. Sets him apart from anyone else.
0: That brings to mind an interesting one because you know when they diverted from that and they went to Eric Serra, that is so dated in its in its sound and everything. You you can tell that that that, that soundtrack is of that time.
8: Yeah, well, there's a few of them in there, isn't it? I mean, you got Marvin yeah. Hamlish with the the 77 BG Bond soundtracks. You have got Bill Conti with his wonderful. 80s, early 80s vibe in
7: there. Yeah, the weird one is um, Live and Let Die, which is very, it's very specific, but it's also George Martin, who, I don't know, he kind of, he he takes his own spin on whatever is contemporary, but he, I don't know, he kind of finds the Bond essence in it, and of course he's got that great song to work off.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I think George did a fantastic job with that. Actually. I think it fits really nicely Mm, with mm. within that actual field, but the ones that you, that you pointed out or whatever pointed about the Hamlish and the, the Conti. And then I said, the Sarah, those are so obvious that they stick out from, from what is classic bond score.
8: Yeah. I like how they, they, they stick out, but well, in my personal opinion, uh, with the exception of Sarah, uh, like uh, the Conti, the Hamlish, uh, especially the Michael Cayman uh, "License to Kill" one, they still capture a sort of Bond essence in there. I and mean, if you listen to to uh, Three Eyes only some tracks like "The Drive in the Country," it's very '80s. Yeah. It's, it's very funky, but still got that Bond feeling in there. Like you can put, you can jumpstart that track anywhere in it, and you'll go. Yeah, that's a Bond track.
0: Yep.
6: Tyler says that he's got something mm. to say. Tyler. Yeah, that was just a misclick. I'm sorry, uh, but um, is Barry and David Arnold, to some extent, um, yeah. are they really timeless, or are they keep hearkening back to that '60s sound?
0: You, you were going to go. you were going Ooh. to something that I was going to actually go into, which is I was going to say how incredible David Arnold, how how his work has been. In, in the films as well, because it was like... It's almost like he's such a fan and or such a study of the work that John Barry did mm. that it's almost seamless that his his work that he's done with the scores fits perfectly with John's.
8: Yeah, I think that's a difficult one, what you said, Todd. I mean, there's something to say that you can... Uh... Claiming, you know, they keep harking back to something, but uh, I think it, I think it was uh, Thomas Newman who said that in that Sound of wsm documentary. And he said, "You know, uh, if you change, uh, if you're going to change something for the sake of change, why bother?" So, you know, that's, I think yeah. there's two sides to the argument. I'm not sure which side I'm on actually, because I think I think that's a really good question.
7: I think the cool thing about Barry also, though, was that he was willing to. Um, he wasn't. Um, he wasn't beholden to the Bond theme uh, like every one of his scores which I think the other uh, composers uh, to varying degrees succeeded or failed but I think John Barry was like oh you know this film is going to have its own identity so you know you'd always, he'd always find a way to put the theme song through the score and it, you know the Bond theme would be in there but yes you know, every every one of his scores feels like its own entity. Yeah,
10: I, I totally agree with that. I think one common misconception sometimes is is that to make a Bondian score, you need to put a lot of the Bond theme in there. And I don't personally agree with that. And um, and and I think one of the perfect examples that is on Majesty's Secret Service. For me personally, I I think mm. that that is my that's my favourite Bond score. But the actual Bond theme is only played at the start when introducing Lazenby and then on the attack of Pitt's Gloria, as far as I can remember. And yet creating the Majesty's um, soundtrack, creating that piece of music and all that goes with it, that sounds so Bondian. It's such a quintessential Bond score, but it's not overlayered. With the James Bond theme tune, and Barry was the master of that of giving each film its own identity.
8: Same thing with Casino Royale. I mean, yes. you don't have the full theme until the very end, and then you've got you know some hints of the Bond theme when he goes on his first quote-unquote exotic trip to the Bahamas, and when he first puts on the tux, when he, and then all the way through, it's sort of a little bit in there, a bit of a bass motif, or a bit of a string here and there. Absolutely. And then we don't have actually have the, the, the full Bond theme until the end. Uh, and yes, I rate uh, Casino Real very highly as a soundtrack.
6: Yeah, and being able to incorporate the theme song into yeah. the soundtrack is uh, is a luxury that composer
3: had. I'll take the other side of the argument for a second. I, I totally agree with what everyone is saying, and it, and it sort of makes it a nice treat when they do use it. But I think um, a great example of where they really used the score incredibly well, I think David Arnold's score for the boat chase in the beginning of The World Is Not Enough, that to me is just a celebration of the Bond score. Mm. Yeah. And probably one of that's the most of quintessential you know, of all the scores. And I think, like, I mean, I, you're almost overdosing on the Bond theme for that, and I just love it.
8: Yeah, that's one of my favorite renditions. It just goes all out. Yeah, that's great.
0: I was going to say, but what they were doing with Casino Royale, though, was what what they were doing was they were hinting every now and again, so what they were I think what I'd heard was they were saying that at the beginning of the film, because it was sort of a reboot of the Bond, of Bond in a way, it was like they were hinting at he wasn't quite Bond as as, as he would be at that time so every now and again Mm -hmm. during the film every little bit where he's becoming that person that he would become you have that little hint of the theme there and it's sort of like building until the end where he actually is 007 and he is bond
8: mm. until we get to quantum of solif and he is again but never mind
7: <laughs> i can't i can't remember who said it first but i remember this around the time casino came out Somebody saying like, oh, you realize like not having the theme there where it's kind of you have to be really careful where you put it, um, because if you put it in the wrong place, like during a moment where I don't know, like if you you couldn't put it in like the torture scene or something like that, it would it would kind of make you know, it would kind of give the audience the wrong um, emotional signal. I guess it would you know, they would be um, it would. Oh, yeah, it's James Bond. He's going to survive. That mm-hmm. kind of um uh, yeah,
8: but, uh, I feel like I'm mangling my words. <laughs> now, the thing I love about the theme itself, if we just talk about the Bond theme, is how versatile it is. I mean, talking about Casino Royale, the, the second he's won, uh, the actual Poketon, it works too to fast for There's this ever slight little stringy arrangement, just a little baseline going up and down. And it's in there. Like, as a fan, you just, you hear that instantly. It's just a tiny little bit. It's sort of almost like, well blink at music uh, and you miss it. But then if you look at No Time to Die, the the second in the pre-title, he um, uses the Gatling guns, uh, the massive ones behind the headlights on the DB5, and Hans Zimmer goes for that bass line, he really doubles down on that. It's from the same theme, yeah. but it's a completely different piece of music. And there's evidence mm. of that all through. I mean, if you look at the um, George Martin example when uh, Roger's tailing the, the guys through New York, completely different kind of piece of music which is actually the same piece of music and i think that's also one of the the great things about the theme itself that you can use it uh, in different ways uh, different arrangements to uh, highlight different kind of emotions Definitely.
0: So we've already looked at clothing and style as well. The next bit that I've got, where it says, "Who is your bond?" I actually did an online, uh, posted something online where I asked people about this. So it's almost a stupid question to ask, but who do people think came up, came out with the majority vote? It's probably Connery. Where
8: was this done, Connery? Yeah, yeah it's got to be Connery or Craig.
0: Funnily enough, I think I only got one vote for Craig. Oh, um, how, how, how many? I only got one, one, one. So I got, I didn't get that many votes really. People voting in, so twenty people voted in total, around twenty people, which isn't a lot, I know. But like, so I said, about sixty percent of those voted for for Connery, and then. I th- I think funnily enough, Moore and Dalton were neck and neck for the for second place. Yeah. And then it went to yeah. Dalton, and then it went to Craig after that and I think I got one for George Lazenby.
4: <laughs> just well, one one for
0: George. Just one for George. Poor George. I mean uh, I will put my I'll Pierce. put my hand up here. Paul Pierce, yes, absolutely. I'll put my hand <laughs> up here and I'll say that I think that Honor and Majesty's Secret Service is a great film. Oh, I, yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. I
6: yeah I agree as well but I don't think that Lazenby is the best bond
0: no I would have liked to have seen him try another one yeah Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd put him
2: up there with with the best bonds Um, yeah maybe he doesn't get the top spot but he's definitely on the podium
8: yeah, well, to be fair, I mean, my podium is a top six, so, you know, it's a bit unfair. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Every, but, you know, people always ask you, like, oh, who's the best Bond? I'm like, there is no, no best Bond. There's only my favourite Bond.
10: Every Bond has real merit. Yeah. If I was, you know, and I, and I think mm. all in all, the most iconic Bond is Connery. For me personally, my favourite Bond's Timothy Dalton.
4: It's hard to, it, it's really hard to top the guy who kind of defined the role absolutely so all of the other guys are, it just seems like it's their you know their their take on the role but but the real definition comes up front so it's kind of really hard to beat that guy i mean it, i i love dalton in the role although license to kill is, is not really a great movie it's okay um but you know it's it's that starting guy kind of always is going to get you know is only going to get a, is always going to get a kind of a leap because every, everything kind of gets measured yeah. back against him.
0: I mean with, the, with those votes, I, I agree with everybody that said about Pierce about Pierce Brosnan. I mean it's a shame that nobody watched it out to him because I think that there were, there were elements in Pierce's I mean GoldenEye is a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. And you know there's lots of really great standout bits in Pierce's films like I love that introduction where he's actually caught. And he's being tortured, and then you go into the then you go into the theme. That introduction there to that film is amazing.
9: Yeah.
8: I think it was uh, Tyler and me had a discussion, uh, like some time off Mike, saying that Pierce is probably the, the one guy out of the six who's really born to play Bond, as like style wise mm. and the, like I don't think anyone has ever been more eager to do it than he. And it's just a bit of a shame that. Uh, the the films he did weren't up to what we now think are uh no like good quote unquote Bond films. Uh but I think he did a terrific job with what, what he was given. Uh well I mean Dino the Day was the first one I saw in cinema, so he's kind of my Bond I mean you know, he translated all his likeness translated into the Bond games I was playing at that age. Uh so he's a bit of a fan favourite and a bit of rose tinted thing going on there,
0: but I think he's uh, Scott's Bond yeah. as well, isn't he, Scott? Yeah. Pierce Brosnan?
1: yep, Yeah, I mean, uh, it's an objective thing, and also a subjective thing, because it depends where you have your goalposts. I mean, if you're looking at, like, Box Office, well, Skyfall was the highest-grossing Bond film of all time, so then I guess the goalpost is Daniel Craig is the best Bond of all time. Uh, If you're talking subjectively, I think my favourite is Pierce Brosnan, because he brought me into the game. What I am shocked is to not hear uh peter sellers where's where's the love from our man sellers
7: <laughs> i'm going for the seal um yes. <laughs> i uh
4: I, I think it's funny when you ask you know, a male bond fan versus a female bond fan because pierce ranks way higher on the ladies list um usually um, this I, is I, true. I the first time i i yeah. took my wife to say i said hey the new bond movie's coming out and In her mind, that was Roger Moore, because that's what her father watched at that time. And she's like, I don't really (laughs) want to see that. That guy's kind of old. And I'm like, well, no, 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 it's the Remington Steel guy. And I I think she got in line a week early um, for the tickets. (laughs) Yeah,
6: Yeah, but I guess if you had some sort of sophisticated computer algorithm um, creating the perfect bond, that would be Pierce Brosnan, right? Well, yeah, you kind of got you style, you have got the,
4: style, <laughs> oh, you've got okay. the charm, yeah, like... you got the sophistication, you got the looks, you get... and the only one who's actually married to a Bond girl. You, you gotta, you gotta give him props yeah, there, man. Yeah,
6: gotta yeah. give him that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in the end, my favorite is uh, my favorite is Roger Moore, though, because there, there isn't a time or place in the world where I will ever be where I don't want to watch a Roger Moore Bond movie.
8: I'm um, I'm even more firmly in the Roger camp as far as favorites is concerned. It's uh, I, I like anything he does.
4: Yeah, I in, in my mind he had the best contract because he had an unlimited supply of Cuban cigars on set cigars, yeah. for every, and that's you know I'm a I was just I just spent two hours at the lounge before I got back here. Um, so right, I'm like that guy's got I could never get that deal at work.
0: Although Sean did well to Wangle being able to, you know, go, you know, have golf courses nearby when you to, Saturday, <laughs> be, you know, when they'd have, have yeah. you know, where they go to.
4: The perks the average Joes oh. of us in the world don't get.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Although I, Roger I, got away with snogging
8: a wife of a beetle, so there's oh, that. Oh, there
4: you go. Yeah, uh, I,
2: I think we do need an objective measure for who was the best Bond, and I, I've got to, I'll propose one. Right, Bond, he's meant to be a killer, right? So how about we put all of our Bonds in a room and see who comes out, right? In that situation, I have to give it to Lazenby. He's got that Australian <laughs> anger in him. He was uh, known for for being a bit of a rough individual in his personal life. So I think put them all in a room, Lazenby's walking out. My, uh, my money's on Barry Nelson
9: yeah
7: very <laughs> nice, <very> nice. <laughs> I was i'm still going the, i'm still going with the seal i think i think people underestimate seals
1: the are dangerous man you've got to stay away from yeah. seals
7: yeah
8: roger will probably make uh, some kind of pun or will be killed but all other fives together at first one down
0: <laughs> but all of them oh well, a lot of them have that but every now and again in their bond films were they where they are like that, I mean, even Roger in some of his films, you'll you'll see bits where he's got absolutely, no, there's no humour or no nothing, no emotion in him whatsoever when he'll kill somebody because it's just killing for killing and he, ju- he just kills them and goes off. And they've all done this in the films, but I would say that I think an interesting bit about Roger is that he's what they needed at the time when they went to go and do Live and Let Die because it's almost as though he gave the films a shot that it needed to be able to bring it into that next level.
7: Hmm. I think it was also important because it, and I think just thinking about it going forward, he kind of broke it out of the idea that it had to be someone vaguely connery like, and they're like, Oh, let's actually try and write the, write this character to suit whatever the strengths of whoever Bond happens to be, which think i think that's um big for the calling back to what we were talking about in terms of bond's longevity just that willingness to like you know who, what are the attributes of the actor that we're bringing yeah, he, in he
4: kind of proved that bond didn't have to be the same guy every time yeah absolutely it's a good yeah. point yeah
3: if i if I, i'll, I'll li- I'd like to add on to some of the praise for roger Moore because i feel like not only did he carry us through a time when I think audiences were looking for something a little different. I mean, I feel like we wouldn't have James Bond today had it not been for Roger Moore being able to deliver the kind of movies that I think people were looking for then. Uh, But not only only that, but when they switched gears, you know, when they were looking to go from very fantastical films to more down-to-earth films, they didn't have to recast. Roger was able to do that and, and really not miss a step so he was incredibly versatile as well
4: all right so we're all agreed Roger Moore was the best then right
6: <laughs> <laughs>
7: uh, i have to say i've become a real fan of his 80s his 80s run oh, just yeah. the older the older guy kind of figuring out I, especially just the way there's a, a lot of scenes where he's just he's clearly outmatched by whoever he's fighting or running away from and he's just Constantly having to improvise, and there's something quite, uh, there's something really cool about that. I mean, it's kind
4: of specific. Yeah, to him. Joe's got an excellent point with the versatility because you know some of his movies are far more tongue in cheek, and I, I'm hard pressed to think of another one of the Bond actors that could have put on that clown costume in, in Octopussy and and still mm. you know still be taken seriously as Bond you know in the in the next film but yeah he he does kind of play all sides of it, and i i don't I just can't see any of the other actors doing that kind of stuff,
0: but well, that sort of ingenuity though in the you know where he knows that he's you know he's got up against somebody that's that's tough when he uses that ingenuity, that's almost bringing out the the spy craft that is in that is there underlying in the James Bond character, don't you think, Scott?
1: Um, I I'm kind of a mixed bag on that. I, I I find the best spy films for me are, are sort of the early Connerys or some of the some of the Craig films. It, it, the spy element tends to drain out of Bond pretty quickly when the the gadgets turn up and the the megalomaniac villains start showing up. Uh, when, when it's back down to sort of gritty also dalton has a lot of spy work actually as well uh, in uh, both daylights and and license to kill
8: i think uh connery and dalton might have the, the the most like spy scenes yeah. uh, as such but i think the other guys uh have their fair share of like little spy moments if you look at uh, octopussy for example uh you know him just walking around. Uh, after they bro- uh they're breaking up the circus and go to uh, Karl Marxstadt. You no, know, he just grabbing a jacket and mm-hmm. trying to you no know, grabbing a crate or whatever. You no, know, just trying to blend in that way and try and see where that uh, gets him. Uh, you no, know, Pierce uh, breaking into a newspaper factory in Tomorrow and find They all have these tiny little bits of them doing their old spy work, and those are the, the scenes I tend to like the most. That's something I really want to see in the next Bond film as well. Bond doing some snooping around where he's not supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, me
10: Agreed. too. I really like how he follows a trail as well. That, I mean, that's really, you know, when he basically, <laughs> well, yeah, take take Octopussy for instance. He just finds a comic star um, leaflet in Octopussy's drawer, and then he takes the film there. He doesn't know what he's going to find in there. It's just going on the trail, spying and seeing where it comes from, and I, and I really like that aspect of it, where um, we as the audience are mirroring Bond in just basically following the trail and seeing where it ends up.
8: Yeah, that's uh, the 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 best way to have a Bond film, uh, I think. Yeah, should not not know more than Bond, like even maybe uh, know a little bit less than Bond, or the same, but not the other way around. Yeah. Which is my main gripe with with Thunderball, for example, yeah. is where you see this plan uh, being explained, then you see it all being played out, and then Bond is playing catch up with you as the audience for the rest of the film, which is a shame. Yeah,
9: yeah.
7: That, that, I think that's me with um, Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff in that, but um, I just don't um, feel anything watching it because every we know we know everything.
8: Yeah, actually, that's, that's quite funny. Is that's the first thing I've actually sort of noticed that. Yeah, you, you know, it's Car kind of from the get go. You know, he has the he's trying to provoke all the stuff. But I guess in that sense, it doesn't bother me as much because it's not all clear what uh, how it's going to play out and uh, what's going to happen next. And with Thunderboys, you hear them
4: talking about the plan. Yeah. I mean, the, the foreshadowing is fine in, I, in any film as long as it builds suspense. But in some cases, in the Bond film, it doesn't mm-hmm. really build the, that suspense. A yeah.
7: yeah. uh, good example is uh, from Russia with Love with um, Red Grant, where we know that mm. he's. Um, yeah, we know his deal going in, and that just makes it way more tense during that whole train sequence.
0: So if we're thinking about Bond then as it's going on now that we've finished with the Craig era, where do we think that the logical next step would be for for Broccoli and Wilson to be looking at to take the the franchise?
8: Wow. Well, looking at what Tyler said with the whole pendulum thing, I think uh, the general consensus is that no, we can go swing uh, back the other way a bit, more standalone, a bit more light-hearted, bit, you know, just don't go straight into another moonrake or the, end of the day, but, you know, just back off the very serious undertone and, and every film. Because we've had... Uh, it's pretty much from The world Enough onwards, where every film has had a character have a, some kind of personal connection or history with a villain or another character in the film. And I'm like... From 1999 to 2021, it's time to sort of drop the personal angles. You know, we've we've had that. It's worked better or worse in some cases, but, you know, let's just have a pre title sequence. That's fun. Having an opening credit with a song, Bond walking into the, the office, flirt with Money Penny, go in. Um, here we go, folder, kill that bloke, off you go.
4: So you don't want his next villain to be like his second cousin, twice removed or anything, right?
9: Yeah. No, you
4: know, not have the, the villain uh,
8: turning out to be the son of the maid he
4: snogged while in. Right, knows where. yeah. It just, no. you know, the, the funniest part is that, you know, the whole Blofeld thing through Spectre and, and No Time to Die. And all I'm thinking is, foster brother or not, like if that was my brother, he keeps calling him Blofeld, knowing that the name Franz ticks him off. Wouldn't you be calling him Franz? Like if Absolutely that was my brother, right. I would be doing yes, everything yeah. I could to just annoy the crap out of that guy, and and Bond just seems to roll right into you know, it's just the the, the whole I'm dynamic no, sounds, is I'm weird.
6: All so, oh, right. Yeah. Mm. Hey, Frati, pull my finger. Hey, right. hey. yes,
4: <laughs> your dad loved me more. Right. <laughs> oh
3: dear. Funny thing about that is that it really only would have taken a, a gentle rewrite to just make that work. You know, like if if. If if I I read an earlier draft where Bond was the one who called him out and said no 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 that's not your name Franz your real name is Blofeld, and I thought that worked a lot better. But
4: oh, wow! I didn't know that. Huh. What rewrite is that? Because there've been a few. I,
3: I don't. Uh, I mean I, I don't know which one or what stage it was at, but I definitely read one of the uh, the scripts. There, there was a, there was one. There was one version where they actually had a card game. There was actually a card game that Bond was playing with, right, with Blofeld, yeah. and it was so it, it was that, at some point over the card game when again you know he was he was calling himself Franz Oberhauser, and and Bond was the one who said, on the contrary, you were adopted too. In fact, your real name is Blofeld. And again, I thought that worked ten times better than just
8: oh Franz yeah. Oberhauser changing
3: his name and Bond just running with it. Just. That didn't work.
8: Yeah, but it's the whole execution in the film as well, isn't it? It's like, well, the, my real name is Blofeld. Oh, got your name. And then we just go on. I'm like, for anyone not uh, known within the Bond franchise, they're like, okay, is this important? And for all of us who know what Blofeld is supposed to mean, we're like, that's it. So it's a lose-lose in that situation.
0: So are we all in agreement then that we think that the future of the Bond franchise a good idea would be to go back to the to to the way of making in every individual film a separate assignment that Bond is given to to then work through for the film.
7: I First would film. love yeah. to do that. Yeah. Yeah.
8: Yeah. And if they go for another story arc, make sure that it's written from the start and don't try to retcon oh, five true. films into one at the end.
6: <laughs> I mean, what, I, what I like about it, what I liked about the old movies was that you had Doctor No, which is the Jamaican one. Then you have uh, From Russia with Love, which is the one in um, in Istanbul and the train and um, Goldfinger. You you're set in America, mm-hmm. and then you have the Bahamas one and the Japanese one and the one in the mountains, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, you've
8: all got the defining. Yeah, traits. I would like yeah. to go
6: right. back to that one to have a mission in a in a specific place with. Bond, go and meet our man in Istanbul, head of Section T, yeah. Turkey. Have an adventure with him or with her. Um, have, a, have it a bit more like that instead of traveling yeah. all over the world. Um, travel times be damned. Mm. Just. Um,
7: yeah, stay in one on, place. Because, yeah. I mean, Casino Royale did that and it was great because we could actually spend right. time with the
8: characters and build suspense. Mm-hmm. and but even if you look at Casino Real, oh. which is probably the most uh, staple film of the Craig ones, I think. No, it, it's still, you no, you go from, was it Prague to the Bahamas mm. to the casino to Italy to, you know, you jump all over the place as but well.
6: Madagascar, like Miami. Yeah. Yeah. More than enough.
7: For me, the, I guess, I guess uh, make make sure whatever happens in the location is consequential yeah. and isn't just, oh, let's,
10: let's go. <laughs> to 12 different places. For me, I just think the most important thing, and some people will say this is regressive, but I'll counter that in a minute, is that we need to go back to standalone, non-personal Bond films. And um, yeah. some people will say, yeah, but we've done that, and we need to try something new. The problem is, is that we've been trying something new to, from since 1999, uh, to the point that actually it would actually be a progressive move to have a standalone Bond film now where Bond just gets on with a mission as opposed to a personal story because actually it's become run of the mill for Bond to be a personal story now and it's losing the essence of it and I just think we need to go back to having a basic I love the idea of doing it in one specific area I think mean, that's great um, I, I'm, I'm quite passionate about that I appreciate some people won't agree with that mm. But I do just believe that we have, we could alienate people in what Bond actually is if we carry on, just trying to do something that's becoming losing its identity for me. I mean, don't get me started on No Time to Die. I'll, I think I'll upset everybody. But um, anyway, yeah, I'll stop ranting. Sorry.
2: Yeah. Well, especially since the uh, books have really had that luxury of being able to jump around time and space and not necessarily have a bond that exists, you know, right now, whenever now is. Right? Uh we've got the one uh Tim will remember the name, the one where he's based in Africa with the
7: uh Uh, um oh god, which which Africa one we Um, ran into a couple um oh the um the one in the the sixties um Solo Solo. um yeah Solo, yeah, yes. so,
2: you know, there we've got a standalone Bond book set in the 60s. And I would really? personally love to see a modern Bond movie set in the 60s or 50s even, where we just don't have the same technology, right? Where information can't be transmitted between two parties at the push of a button, uh, which I think all of these modern technology takes away from the modern spy thriller because anything is possible now. Uh, so yeah, a standalone film I think would be
4: great for the Bond genre. I've,
5: Do you
2: think I mean, that just, they just, would just... go
4: that route though because with modern product placement and the like?
2: No, I don't think they
8: will but I'd love to see it. Yeah. Sure. No, I'm very much not in favour of that the whole period piece.
0: Scott, you were going to say
1: well I, I just i mean everyone was discussing it. i just wanted to sort of throw my two cents in for a second I, I i mean i agree with some points i disagree with other points raised i think the one thing that would sort of galvanize our opinions to sort of form a, a general consensus is i think bond needs to be more fun again
8: yeah mm-hmm. yeah pretty
1: much i i don't mind i don't mind continuity i don't mind other things like that i don't mind it uh, you know, having overarching stories of different films, it doesn't bother me. I think storytelling needs to evolve. Or I don't know if, if we need to look backwards when in terms of like period pieces either, but well, I talked about Tomorrow Never Dies, bringing me in at the beginning and playing the thing in the back seat of the car as a kid. We need to get younger fans to enjoy the franchise again and I don't think many younger fans watched No Time to Die and thought, yes, that's what I want. Mm-hmm.
9: <laughs>
2: Yeah, and you're sort of right because uh, Skyfall did quite an effective sort of taking back to more of an old Bond style without actually having to take the film back into the 60s. Uh, so there is definitely an ability to, to play around with it and create a technological solution to these technological problems. Uh, EMPs are a great idea. We just wipe out the technology of the city and you've essentially got Bond in the Stone Age. So... You know, he, It doesn't have to be based in the past to get rid of these issues, but um, ultimately the way we've got it at the moment where it has been a, a continuation of Bond film from one to the other to the, to the next rather than standalone however they decide to do it is you get this issue where by the time Skyfall or No Time To Die comes out, I don't care about Vesper, right? Why is she still the love interest? Why do we have these continuing themes, uh, which really should have been resolved in a previous film? You know, Vesper should have probably been resolved in Quantum of Solace,
6: for instance. He actually resolves it at the end of Casino Royale. The bitch is dead. Doesn't... Yeah, they they
7: they they they, un, they keep unpicking the um, the threads for each film, which is frustrating. Okay.
8: Now, then again, it Um, also depends a little bit on how to do it. I mean, for all the things I dislike about Spectre, the one thing I'll always be very grateful for is that we got some uh, proper closure of the whole Mr. White story. That's some scenes I really loved about that. I mean, never mind everything that happened afterward, but I thought that was a nice little. uh, Because I'm really afraid that Mr. White was going to be one of those, uh, you know, one that got away and, and lived his life doing evil stuff somewhere. Uh, as we've had in the films in the past. but In general, I think, um, cause I heard someone uh, talk about Goldeneye, I think that what they should do is pretty much uh, do what uh, Jack Wade said Bond did uh, to Zukovsky as the next film. You know, shoot the bad guy in the leg, steal his car, take his girl. End credits.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I think we've had a really good discussion here. It's been
8: great talking to, um, uh, well, fellow geeks, aficionados, nerds, whatever everyone likes <laughs> to, to call themselves. Uh, you know, it's, it's always a pleasure to discuss something you really like, for other people also like it.
3: Yeah, nice to meet you all, finally. Um, going hey, I something. couldn't agree more. I think it was really nice to meet a couple of new faces in the Bond world. So Thank you for having me here.
4: Well, it's great meeting yeah, all of voice. you. Yeah, well done, everyone. Thank you, uh, thank you for inviting me on here. Yeah, thank you very thank much. So Cheers to another sixty years! Mm. Yeah. All right, so uh, sixty yeah, so years uh, from today, we all get back together. right?
8: I
2: think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that'll that'll work.
8: I <laughs> know. Oh, I'll be eighty-eight. I'll be fine.
0: I'll be a hundred and eleven. Oof, eat your oh, greens,
4: Sixty years, yeah. I'll, I'll a martini and a Monte Cristo day. My children will be living off of my inheritance. <laughs> I'll
6: still be twenty-nine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going to Roger Moore, are you? <laughs> yeah. I am.
8: Just get a better plastic surgeon. Yeah. Go
0: so oh, you can close cool your eyes. So anyway, let's go. Let's go in order to, as to how everybody is on the screen. So. Actually, double O files. We've got two people here. So, if Martin and Tyler want to say where they can, where the show can be found and how to get in touch with them,
8: um, well, we are on the double files.com and on uh, any app uh, that you get your podcasts uh, on or in. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Uh, and people can uh, email at info at the double O files.com or moneypenny at the double files.com.
0: Okay, and Tim?
7: Oh, uh, you guys can uh, reach the uh, James Bond Cocktail Hour. It should be available on all podcasting platforms. And we're also on uh, Instagram and Twitter at jbchpod007. Uh,
0: I could, I should have said Tim and you at the same time then. So, John from the really 007?
10: Yep. Yeah, so we're on all um, standard podcasts podcast outings like Spotify and iTunes, etc. you can follow us on uh, Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. And we're also on YouTube where we post our interviews on YouTube. And if you want to contact us, it's really double, that's the actual words, 07 at gmail.com.
4: Okay, Bud? So the Bond Brain, it's on Instagram. It is on um, all your major podcasts platforms youtube and uh, if you're into bond and you also like cigars you can reach out and and request to join the bond community cigar lounge which is uh, a group put together by emery cormier the james bond complex and myself we do online cigar bond events as well as some live events uh, in the us and canada okay joe
3: uh, once again, thank you for having me. Uh, you can find me at Being James Bond, and uh, you can find Being James Bond on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Check it out.
0: And last but certainly not least, Scott.
1: Well, as I mentioned, I'm the odd man out. So not only do you find James Bond stuff on SpyHards, but you get a plenty of spy films too. And you can find us basically wherever you get your podcasts, and on all social media platforms at spy That's SpyHards. That's S P Y H A R D S.
0: And can I just say, I love that you uh, you picked out the uh, in in the the Bond film where they had a nod to the uh, what is it? Um, Oh, um, Alfred Hitchcock film, um, North by Northwest, with the, you know, with the crop duster, which was basically repeated for the helicopter in Bond.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, from Russia with love. Yep. Absolutely.
0: And uh, what would a Bond film have been like, directed by Alfred Hitchcock?
1: There was there was moments for Doctor No where we came close, but not quite close enough, unfortunately. But that, that's another universe.
8: Yeah, I was going to say the universe of what-ifs of Bond is a, is a great topic of discussion as well. Mm-hmm. We what-if soundtracks, what-if actors, what-if uh, locations.
0: Anyway, thank you everyone for speaking with me today, guys. This was so much fun. We could have spoken for much longer if it wasn't so late in the UK.
2: <laughs> great. Thanks, Mark. Well, thanks for having us. Bye for now. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thank Bye, you. folks. Thank you. Thank you,
0: guys. Yeah so you can find bad. thank you All very right. much you can find pods like us on instagram <laughs> twitter and tiktok and you can contact us through pods at gmail.com anyway thank you everyone for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of pods like us